Chris Domes from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I'm the chairperson for our journal club tonight on patella fractures. Here are our moderators, myself, Dr. Bill Ryan, and Ishvindar Gurwal. Our authors who are going to be with us today are Dr. Egal, Dr. Amir, uh, Dr. Warner is has done the video portion, and then Dr. Shodel will be doing our Q&A. And with that, we will jump into our video section of this webinar. I'm Dr. Chris Domes from University of Wisconsin. I'm joined by Dr. Ken Egel to discuss his paper, Patella Fracture Fixation with Suture and Wire, You Reap What You Sow. Thank you very much, Dr. Egel, for joining me on this uh, webinar and to have a further discussion with our participants after this short video section. Absolutely. Thanks very much for having me, Chris. So we'll start off with some basic questions. What made you interested in pursuing looking at suture repair for patella fractures, Dr. Eagle? Well, I think, you know, at the time we uh, pursued this paper, you know, options for fixation of these very distal comminuted fractures, especially in the elderly, um, distal pole fractures of the patella, very limited. And um, this was one technique that, um, you know, had been taught to me as a resident and was kind of a, a standard. Um, you know, the decision when I was training was either, you know, do a partial patellectomy and advance the patellar tendon versus doing something like this. And it always made sense to me that uh, for a couple of reasons that you want to maintain the patellar length and not create a patella baja. And number two, that potentially you'd have better healing with bone to bone uh, type of healing rather than tendon to bone healing. With suture. So um, it's kind of something that we um, started doing. And I think one of the major advantages over time has been the improvement in the uh, uh, non absorbable, heavily braided uh, suture, uh, which are improved even today over, over what we originally wrote about. What changes have you really seen since the almost 10 years since this paper came out, you know, specifically with the suture that you use or your technique, have you, has that changed? Um, yes, yes, it has. You know, uh, I think um, when we wrote this, we were using uh, mainly Ethabon suture and uh, we've pretty much switched over to fiber wire uh, type suture now. And now they have uh, even stronger suture tape that's available. In addition, um, you know, some of the companies have come out with some very uh, sleek and nifty uh, suture anchors uh, that have also been helpful, I think, in reconstruction of the extensor mechanism, both uh, proximally and distally. And so I think those little modifications have, uh, have helped. I've gone from just utilizing suture alone. I'll use like a, a hybrid kind of fixation that includes suture through tunnels and an anchor. It's kind of like belt and suspenders. If, if one fails, maybe you have the other one to maintain fixation during healing. And in this paper, you show that between the wire fixation, there was really no difference besides sutures had way less removal of hardware, which is fantastic for our patients. Have you noticed any other changes or complications that do arise in the suture fixation group now that you've been doing this for a lot longer? Well, when we wrote the paper, we hadn't had any any failures, but uh, since then I, I have had a number of failures. 
uh, as I've had a number of failures from quad tendon and patella tendon repairs as well. And usually when that happens, it's, it's, a, it's a much bigger problem. And um, although the salvage is a much bigger procedure involving weaving allografts in, um, they actually perform pretty well in, uh, um, also. So I think the key, just like any other fracture, is you know, getting the fracture to heal. It's, it's you know, what does the fracture look like at the time of healing? So if you can get those, those fragments to heal, even if it's a, a fibrous union and it doesn't look radiographically healed and patient can straight leg raise, then you've achieved you know, your goal. You have a rehab protocol that you list in the paper, which is essentially weight bearing while keeping the legs straight for the first six weeks and then maybe a progressive bending program after that. Has that changed or do you still use that same protocol with your current suture fixation? Well, I'll tell you one thing that I've done when I have someone who I think is really high risk for failure, like a bilateral or again, an older patient, I oftentimes will scrub with one of my sports colleagues and we'll do an acute um, hamstring harvest, leaving the uh, PEZ attached um, distally. And we will weave it through, um, you know, the quad proximally, and then tie it down with this with another anchor on the other side. And when I do that, you know, I feel a little bit more comfortable about you know letting people move early, even if I don't, and I know that they're gonna, because um, it's very hard for them unless you cast by both lower extremities and extension. Uh, it's very hard to imagine that they're gonna, you know, be reliable in in your post-op instructions. So uh, that's one thing that we've done to modify. Um, the approach in, in certain patients. When you are doing the suture repair, how do you tension the sutures appropriately? Yeah, so when, when we're doing a bone-to-bone -bone, uh, fixation and we bring the suture through the inferior pole fragments, basically I just uh, look at the lateral radiograph and I'll clamp those fragments, you know, with a pointed reduction clamp like I would if I was going to fix it with cannulated screws and I'll tie it down, you know, with, with the bone reduced. And that's usually the guide for, um, you know, the appropriate amount of tension. You know, the problem is with suture, you don't, you, you only get the amount of tension you get when you tie it down. And then, you know, you probably progressively lose a little bit as, you know, creep sets into the, the suture. Uh, it's not like a wire where, you know, you can, keep twisting it and gain more tension. And then you, it can become a dynamic tension band with flexion of the knee. So it, it, they do behave a little bit differently. One of the things that we worry about with a braided suture in the knee is infection. If you do get an infection, it's a lot harder to find. Any tips or words of wisdom regarding that? Only spend the time to take it all out. You'll regret it if you don't get it all out. And it's just sitting there with a clamp trying to trying to dig out, undo all of that crack out that you did, you know, and get all the, if you use anchors, make sure you get those anchors out also. You know, it's all foreign material. So uh, you got to get everything out, really, if you want to manage the FRI. Even with the suture that we use, patients can be irritated by the knots. Have you found a way or how do you manage your knots, like weave it through the tendon somehow? Yeah, so what I'll do is, uh, you know, after we tie them down proximally, uh, I'll leave a length of the, um, uh, of, of the limbs 
and um, you know, with a free needle, I'll uh, use an 11 blade and cut a little slot in the quad tendon. And then I'll pass the knot through the quad tendon and out the side. And then I'll over sew the little uh, nick that I made to keep the knot buried within the quad tendon. That's better, but you know, if there's any atrophy or anything else, they may feel it. I mean, there's no perfect way to, uh, uh, you know, do these unless you use some, you know, type of, uh, I've also used sometimes some of these uh, knotless anchors, um, you know, that you can kind of dunk the suture in by twisting it in. And, um, you know, you, you end up with, with a knotless kind of uh, construct. Dr. Eagle, in summary, what do you think people should take away from your research on patellas and, and including this paper? So I think the, you know, obviously we have a very good um, method of treatment for mid-pole fractures and even comminuted fractures now with patella plating uh, has a good answer. But I think that, you know, the inferior pole, especially the comminuted fracture in the elderly, uh, remains a, a fracture of, 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 you know, difficulty. And I think the suture technique utilizing basically the concept of using the patella tendon to gain fixation uh, into the bone is very similar to what we do with the greater tuberosity in the shoulder. And um, I think um, utilizing the suture technique, whether it's through um, longitudinal drill holes or utilizing uh, suture anchors with or without any other type of cerclage, um, uh, uh, patellar cerclage technique, um, as a, as an adjunct um, is really the best method for you know uh, getting alignment of inferior pole patella fragments and getting you know the extensor mechanism restored uh, in these complex injuries. Well, that's fantastic! Thank you so much for taking the time out to do this webinar. Really appreciate and really pre uh, we really appreciate all the work you've done uh, in your research and helping us all be better surgeons. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks very much. So our next author is someone who needs no introduction. He's been a prolific author in the orthopedic literature. Dr. Mir is the program director at University of South Florida. He's the director of uh, trauma research at Florida Orthopedic Institute in Tampa. Dr. Mir, it's a privilege to speak with you today about the publication on patella fractures treated with cannulated lag screws and fiber wire technique. Uh, this paper was published in Injury in uh, February 2020. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, let's jump right into it, Dr. Mir. Um, what what do you feel that this paper was needed for in the uh, orthopedic literature? Yeah, so as a resident in the early 2000s, I had used uh, prior techniques with um, either K wires and and uh, and steel wire tension band or cannulated screws and steel wire tension band, and then uh, I was a fellow here uh, in 2008 and was introduced to this newer technique and then uh, used it in my practice the first five or six years uh, while I was at Vanderbilt and then came back to Tampa and, you know, was still using it, saw that all my partners here were using it. And after a few more years, figured that it was time to get it in the literature because one of our uh, fellows who came on board, uh, as we explained it to him, said, hey, there's nothing about this out there. I don't think a lot of people are utilizing it, so it'd probably be good to report on it. That's great. And I'm, I'm glad you did. Um, wh what was the the idea behind using fiber wire instead of the 18 gauge? Do you know how that started? Yeah, so um, when the product was released initially, there were some biomechanical studies 
showing that it was, you know, in pure strength, not quite as strong as steel wire, but but uh, in slip, cyclic loading and in various uh, loading scenarios, it was equivalent. Um, and then also, you know, with the uh, steel wire, obviously there was a lot of a high instance of breakage and implant irritation and problems. So that kind of led folks to uh, areas where they were using uh, steel wire previously to consider using fiber wire. Awesome. And, and you had this awesome picture in the uh, in the paper that really illustrates the technique well. And in my opinion, one of the most difficult parts, which is uh, passing the suture through the, the cannulated screws. Do you mind just briefly uh, giving the listeners a summary of, of your technique? Um, you know, first off, uh, the 4.0 cannulated screws are placed either retrograde or integrate, depending on the fracture pattern and where it would be best suited. Um, and then uh, um, with a Keith needle, um, you'll load a number two fiber wire suture. And then, you know, I would suggest uh, testing this on the back table through a, a regular screw first, because not all manufacturers uh, will allow you to double loop the number two fiber wire and actually fit through the screw. So in that case, you have to modify the technique, either go through single stranded or uh, maybe use a fiber tape or something different. Um, so then you'll pass the screw, uh, pass the Keith needle through the screw, um, starting at the head, coming out of the end of the screw. And then whichever direction you went, you'll want to pass it antegrade or retrograde through the screw in the, uh, the second screw in the exact same direction. Right, so you've passed your suture now, and then here in the second figure, you just cut the uh, cut the needle off, and then you've essentially got two uh, independent um, uh, tension bands if you wanted. Um, then in the third figure here, you can see where they're tied. Now I have tended to not tie these together anymore uh, for knot prominence. I'll actually separate them out and tie them at different corners, uh, and you just have to figure out which end goes to which end, right? Uh, and then with the running locking cerclage, um, this probably doesn't quite represent what I do anymore either. And to avoid bunching things up, I probably make it more of a uh, hexagon or an octagon shape, just grabbing each side a few times and then tying that again at a different corner, uh, not directly in the midline or and not directly over quad or patellar tendon. But that way, if you can avoid your knots being prominent, it would be nice. So, so that's it. That's a great adjunct for uh, the technique, the fiber wire cyclage. Which uh, fracture patterns did you find that you need to use that? Um, yeah, so um, I'm, I actually use it on all my extensor mechanism repairs, right? No matter what technique I'm using, whether it's the screws and, and uh, fiber wire tension band or a mesh plate or, you know, uh, uh, running running suture through like a patellar tendon repair or quad tendon repair, I'll add this or clodge because there's really no downside to it. There's an alternative way you can you can also do it with uh, running uh, doing a running locking suture up through the quad tendon and pass it over the front of the patella and down through the patellar tendon just to basically make your extensor mechanism one in addition to whatever your direct fracture repair is. Mm -hmm. That's great. And then, so I, I saw your paper had a, a quite a few number of, of patellar fractures. So you looked at a total of 387 uh, patients and 112 of these patients or about a third of patients had were treated with this uh, particular technique. Um, can you describe what, what are your indications for choosing this technique over other uh, techniques? 
Yeah, so if it's a transverse fracture or maybe transverse with a second fragment that you could fix with an independent interfragmentary screw, like a small 2.7 screw or something, then that's the patterns where I think that this is a good technique. If you have a proximal pole or a distal pole, uh, that's probably mostly an all suture repair type technique. Or if you have a lot of comminution, that's going to be some sort of mesh plate or patellar specific plate technique. So really it's the uh, relatively simple patterns that you would use this on. Mm -hmm. And, and um, so you said comminuted fractures and in, in extreme pole fractures probably would use it an alternative technique. Do you have a, a go-to alternative technique or is well, if it's a comminuted fracture, uh, go-to is is uh, uh, either a mesh plate uh, or a patellar-specific plate. And then for pole fractures, it's it's mostly an all-suture technique. Okay. Um, and, and I looking through the results, you had a, a very surprisingly high rate of primary union of 97% and then a, a low rate of symptomatic uh, implant removal of uh, 8% compared to other techniques in the literature. Was, were these findings surprising for you? Mm, not really. That's kind of why we wrote it up, right? Is that, is that we've been doing this for a long time and people were healing and we weren't really taking out much hardware. And so that's kind of wasn't really surprising um, to find that. Yeah. And, and along with that too, your range of motion was great. It was uh, average was zero to 120 degrees. What, can you comment a little bit on your, your post-op protocol for these patients? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> mine uh, specifically, my partners vary a little bit, but they're pretty, pretty similar in that um, for the first six weeks, it's active flexion and passive extension only. So we really don't want people firing their quads much. And then um, when they're standing and walking, it's either a knee immobilizer and they're allowed to weight bear, or for my patients, I use a hinge brace locked in extension. And then when they're seated, they can start moving from zero to 40 degrees uh, the first couple of weeks. And then after the sutures are out at two or three weeks, then we advance them 10 degrees weekly. Uh, the goal is to be at 90 degrees by six weeks. Excellent. Well, Dr. Mir, I, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, speak with me today. Uh, I think I'm sure I, I gained a lot from it. I'm sure our listeners also gained a lot from hearing your insight about treating these patients using your technique. So um, thank you and, and have a good day. Yeah, thanks for having me and look forward to the discussion. Dr. Stephen Warner is an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery at McGovern Medical School at UT Health Houston and works at Memorial Herman Level 1 Trauma Center. Uh, he competed for the United States and National Olympic Rowing Team, and he completed orthopedic surgery at Hospital for Special Surgery in New York, where he co-authored the paper we'll be looking at today with the late Dean Lorich. So the paper we're discussing today is multi-planar fixation for patella fractures using a low-profile mesh plate. So first question, Steve, was really what prompted the idea for this technique? Because it's so far removed from what was previously kind of taught at AO, you know, tension band wiring, cantilever screws. It seems like a really big leap to what you guys started doing. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Dean Lorch and Dave Helpit um, were very aware of the poor outcomes associated with traditional fixation constructs for patella fractures with regards to persistent knee pain as well as uh, inferior uh, functional outcomes and so I think they were really uh, set on finding a solution to that uh, problem 
And um, it, it seemed like the uh, stability of patella fractured, which are often comminuted, wasn't uh, really addressed with the traditional tension band um, constructs. And so they sought to be able to develop uh, this new plating technique to address um, uh, patella fractures, which, as we know, are often associated with uh, comminuted fracture patterns. And the idea with this plate that they developed um, was um, able to address uh, the common fracture patterns of comminution with the goal to provide better stability and improve uh, overall patient outcomes. And so that was the, the premise behind it was, uh, I think, just really realizing um, despite our best efforts with some traditional constructs, that patients still didn't do as well as we had hoped. And and how did the the plate positioning and shape evolve? I mean, was this is this was it is this number one tra technique, or were there some sort of failed attempts previously? Yeah, so I think they they started really with um, looking at uh, the vascularity of this uh, anatomic location, similar to what they've done in other regions of the hip and of the talus. Um, they started kind of with an anatomical study of the vascularity of the patella to look at where the predominant blood supply is, which was uh, inferior medial. And then based upon that, um, looking at some of the common fracture patterns um, that are associated with these injuries, uh, specifically with regards to inferior pole comminution. And so taking some of that information with regards to the vascularity as well as the common fracture patterns, then developing what approach uh, may be best for this, and that would be the lateral parapatella approach. And then what kind of implant can be used through that approach to address the common fracture patterns really to um, supply um, adequate fixation to that inferior pole, which is often common and often the place of failure with traditional uh, techniques. And so based upon that, as well as the development of um, plate designs that allowed for um, small or mini fragment uh, screw fixation um, with a high density of uh, screw holes in the plate um, in a low profile setting, um, I think really led to that uh, specific plate design and location. Interesting. So they never went medial, and they did the, they did the anatomical study first, and then decided the whole time to go lateral. Is that right? Yeah. So it's a very systematic way to approach it. Really taking it from you know the first step of um, looking at the anatomy of this area, then um, using that to then develop uh, the approach and the the, the method for uh, implant application. Okay. Um, so just a couple of little nuances from the paper. Um, it said that they described not using any tourniquet. Um, is that still your routine practice to do these tourniquet-less? You find it makes I'll it still use, produce it? Yeah, I'll still use some tourniquets. Uh, it depends on <clears throat> on uh, the clinical situation as well as the assistance in the operating room. Certainly can be helpful um, to not use it if there's uh, adequate uh, assistance to be able to visualize the different areas. But uh, um, I think um, in, in this study, as well as uh, in their practice, not using tourniquet was routine um, to, to treat these types of injuries. Um, and also in the study, they said that at the end of the operation, they range it through a complete range of motion. I mean, I'm brave enough to range my patella fixation to about 90 in the OR. Um, were they taking it all the way to, you know, like foot heel to the butt, like for flexion? Yeah, they were aggressive for sure. You know, and I think that's one of the advantages of using this type of fixation is you can have confidence in the, in the ability uh, for this plate um, with most fracture patterns to be able to stabilize uh, the, the different injuries. And I think um, one of the main parts of this 
uh, construct that helps with the stability is obviously not just the plate itself, but the soft tissue repair that can be associated with it. I think it was describing here the sutures that are applied after the plate has been placed um, through the limbs of the uh, plate that then get um, placed with the Krakow suture technique through the patella tendon and then tied back over to the top of the plate. And so that suture augmentation uh, really uh, helps as well with regards to providing uh, stability in addition to obviously the retinacular repair, which we know is uh, also important part of this uh, soft tissue uh, repair. So yeah, the, 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 the suture repair interesting because I do the routinely for most of my patella fractures as well. And I was interested, did they have some failures before they did that, before they added that in, or was that straight away off the bat? They just said, we're going to go belt and braces and add that to all our plate fixation. All I saw was that uh, suture augmentation repair routinely, and I think, again, knowing that uh, this inferior pole has been a problematic part of these uh, fractures and uh, looking at the failure rates and the failure mechanisms uh, without the, the suture augmentation, even with the circlage, you know, some of those tension band constructs um, will often have the circlage wiring around it just to help yeah. support some of the kind of comminution you often get in patella fractures. But even with that, uh, it's challenging to control and uh, stabilize that inferior pole and so um, a nice part of that plate is having those limbs going anteriorly over the uh, patella which then can be used as a post in order to tie those sutures uh, from the patella tendon to offload the the forces uh, on that uh, relatively osteoporotic inferior pole that's often found and this is just you you may or may not know this i just noticed looking at the pictures they always cut out the middle hole was there any reason? Was that for for prominence, or they just? Yeah, the, um, prominence was one factor. That dorsal part of that, or the anterior yeah. part of that plate, is certainly an area that uh, can be, you know, irritating to the soft tissues in that anatomic area. And so that's uh, one of the reasons. And now there are, you know, multiple vendors with different types of anatomic patellar plates that are out there, which. Um, have kind of fine tuned even further, um, but the overall idea uh, was to have some um limb of those plates coming over anteriorly to provide some multi uh, planar uh, uh stability with different screw trajectories that can come lateral to medial superior to inferior inferior to superior and then anterior to posterior so you have all these different planes available for screws and um, um uh, specific limbs of those plates which can be applied anteriorly without having as much soft tissue prominence um so i guess that you're in the study at the post-operative phase that four weeks it said they were allowing full range of motion without the knee brace was that including weight bearing as well just so just let them, let them fly yeah yeah so weight bearing was allowed uh immediately after surgery um uh, with the kind of isometric um exercises to just help with the quad strengthening um prevent atrophy in that early post-operative period and then uh four weeks uh, progressive knee range of motion as tolerated and then at um, at eight weeks, um, working on uh, progressive strengthening exercises. So, um, I think you know the idea was that that added stability from the the plate and the suture augmentation um, really afforded an aggressive rehab protocol. Which, um, you know, the idea was that hopefully that would lead to better clinical outcomes, which it seemed like it did in, in the further clinical uh, studies compared to uh, more tension band like constructs. And how did you choose which patients to? to try this on initially? Were they just all comers or were, did you, were you carefully selected with the initial patients? Yeah, they were putting on all comers. Um, they had a kind of a change in practice um, from tension bands once they developed this type of uh, construct and then 
fit all of them with this uh, construct. And then that allowed a nice cohort comparison to really see if this was a, a valuable um, change in implant design, which in the follow-up clinical study, comparing the two different cohorts of tension band constructs to this uh, construct uh, found um, uh, pretty big differences in clinical outcomes uh, in these uh, patients. So that uh, uh, provided a nice uh, ability to really really see and really test whether this was uh, gonna be beneficial uh, for these types of injuries. So is this still your go-to or do you use some of the new atomic plates or is there still a role for tension band and cantilever screws in your practice? Yeah, I think it's always good to have uh, uh, lots of different techniques that you can use depending on the patient characteristics, the fracture patterns and so forth. But uh, certainly, especially for accommodated fractures, uh, this type of design is really beneficial. I think it gives you um, a tool that uh, can effectively stabilize a comminuted patella fracture um, uh, that uh, is reliable and has good outcomes. So for sure, used use in practice. And I noticed there's some CT scans. Was that routine practice for all the patella fractures or just the comminuted ones? Yeah, for all patella fractures. And uh, one of the kind of lead-up studies to developing this was uh, one that showed around 90% of these uh, fractures had unrecognized inferior pole comminution. As we know, it's you know sometimes challenging to see the actual fracture lines on a, a AP knee x-ray of a patella with the, all the overlying um, a distal femur. And so um, the CT scans really, um, you know, led to better uh, identification of some of these unrecognized uh, areas of comminution, uh, which was helpful when, when kind of looking at different ways to stabilize these. And so pretty routinely getting CT scans. And during this course of the study, all patients uh, had CT scans. And I think that uh, led to, you know, this, a lot of what led to this implant design, as well as uh, just preoperative planning for where the plate could be positioned, what type of screws you may need, what your reduction techniques may be, and so forth. And in this study, there's only one rule of hardware. In the later ones, was, was, was that still fairly low rate of hardware removal? As far as I saw when I was there, um, you know, in this area, it's challenging. As, as you know, it's, uh, there's just not a lot of tissue overlying the anterior patella. Or, um, so I think you know, that's always a concern. And the ability, I think they describe in here, is uh, the insight to bending of the plate as well. You know, even though there's anatomic plates for patellas, everyone's patella is going to be a little bit different like other areas of our body. And so the ability to kind of uh, contour the plate with um, insight to bending irons, I think, is really helpful um, so that you can really decrease the prominence of the plate uh, from the soft tissue. And so uh, I think that's one of the utilities of um, some of the aspects of this technique as well is once you have it fixed in a place with some um, um, initial uh, screws that uh, you can then contour the plate around the surface of the patella to minimize uh, some of the uh, implant irritation. Okay, that ends our video portion. Uh, now we're going to be moving to the question and answer. Before that, just a couple of things. We have some upcoming journal clubs, subtroke uh, fractures, MEPO techniques, elbow fractures, and pelvic ring resuscitation. So keep your eyes out for those. These are recorded and uh, made available on YouTube, Spotify, as well as in the op Apple podcast library usually about 24, is, uh, 24 hours after this is completed. 
So at this time, we'll move on to the discussion. So I'll have my moderators as well as the authors unmute their microphones and join in with their video. I'll stop sharing my screen. So uh, thank you very much uh, to all the authors as well as the um, the moderators for taking the time out of your days to come and do this and join this web webinar. And thank you very much, participants, for being involved uh, in the AO and and you know checking out these webinars. I think there's a great amount of information that we get from reviewing these journal articles. So we'll start off uh, with some questions, and I'll start off with one to uh, Dr. Eagle as well as Dr. Murr. Are are you guys getting CT scans uh, on your patella fractures routinely? Uh, I'm not, um, you know, pretty much these are done open and you have a pretty good view of the entire patella. Once you open it up and you're looking at it, you flip the fragments that, you know, flip it down, you can look and you can see everything. So, you know, I go in with a, with a plan and a backup plan and a third plan. And, uh, I find a CT scan to not be that helpful to me. Yeah. Same at our center. We do not get CTs on patella fractures. Um, you know, uh, as Dr. Eagle mentioned, it's it's a open procedure. You're going to be looking at it. And even if you had a CT that showed a little bit of comminution, you might still try your initial plan before you go to plan B or plan C. And the one situation I could see that is potentially if you're at a center where you're having to call in for different implants for plan B or plan C ahead of time, it might be advantageous. But if you have all of those options available to you on the shelf, I don't see a, a major advantage in getting a CT scan. It was mentioned, I believe, uh, with the mesh plate paper, but how are uh, the authors assessing uh, the articular reduction, especially in setting when there's not a large retinacular tear? Are you extending retinacular tear? Are you uh, routinely performing uh, paracatellar arthrotomy? Yeah, so I'll go first. I, I, I do extend uh, the retinacular rent uh, enough to get uh, a couple of small Ragnell retractors and uh, to, to be able to visualize the articular reduction. It doesn't take a lot to be able to visualize it, but I, I think that directly seeing it is uh, more reliable than purely going off uh, uh, fluoroscopic imaging because of the odd shape of the patella and the ease with which it can be off. My, my experience has been that for the really comminuted ones, the ones I know I'm gonna have to plate, the retinaculum is generally intact because those are direct blow fractures causing a stelly pattern as opposed to eccentric load, which pulls everything apart and you have a wide retinacular tear. So those are the ones that I'll do a, a lateral parapetellar arthrotomy and flip it over and look look at it, um, you know, especially in a, in a younger person. Uh, it really gives you a great, uh, great view, great exposure. Um, it's just a little weird doing it, but you get used to it. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I'm not routinely doing a large lateral parapetellar arthrotomy. Uh, just to be able to look at the articular surface, but obviously depends upon the fracture pattern and what I'm trying to accomplish. I, I do agree that fluoroscopy sometimes can be difficult to assess. I think it's important to realize that, you know, you can get some oblique views. So you're kind of looking tangentially at, you know, the medial and lateral facets, usually about 20 degrees of internal rotation, 20 degrees of external rotation will kind of get you a view of the medial and lateral articular surfaces of the patella, which can be helpful. But I agree, whether it's something small and get a freer in there or your finger or direct visualization and more aggressive kind of lateral parapetal arthrotomy and inversion, it just kind of depends upon the fracture pattern and what you need to see and, you know, uh, what you're trying to accomplish. 
Is everyone always going lateral paracatellar? Does anyone ever go medial? Has anyone gone medial ever had an issue with AVN? Now, I've gone medial before. I mean, people do it around the world for arthroplasty, and I don't think all those patellars are dying. So obviously, this is a different situation, and then it's a fracture that's trying to get the heel. But, you know, I would think that if there was a real issue with AVN, we'd see a lot of people with total knees with dead patellas. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to do all lateral. I think that's just because I'm a disciple of Dean Lorch. But it, I, as as Dr. Muir said, I, th I think you could probably go either way, depending upon, you know, maybe if that um, retinacular rent is already kind of created for you immediately, I, I don't see any reason why you couldn't utilize it. One question from the audience or the participants is, in patients, and this kind of goes back to what we talked about with Dr. Eagle, uh, with older patients, but patients with Parkinson's disease or neuromuscular disorders who have patella fractures, do you guys have any uh, tips or recommendations for those uh, patients, even in their rehabilitation plans? So those are ones that uh, on uh, patients who I don't think can reliably weight bear without risk of fall. Uh, those are ones that I'll just make non-weight bearing for a period of time. And, but I will still hopefully when seated, allow them to start bending a little bit, uh, but uh, but I, I don't let them weight bear. I have a couple of uh, heretical views on patella fractures. Number one, I don't, I don't think they need to be anatomically perfectly reduced. Um, I think the key is restoring the extensor mechanism uh, it's much more important because we all have patients with perfect looking x-rays and they still have anterior knee pain. And I have patients who have imperfect x-rays that are doing just fine. And, uh, and the second is you can lock people up for six weeks till they heal and they will get their flexion back. The key is, is getting extension. If you, if they can't get extension back, that's a much bigger problem. People can't walk if they can't extend their knee. That's the, that's what I'm really worried about, especially in old people when I'm not, you know, I, I have plenty of cases where even uh, screws and tension band wires have pulled out or the bone is pulled out around the, that fixation. So I'm much more concerned about getting the extensor mechanism to heal over everything else. That's just my opinion. We had a couple of questions in the chat regarding uh, either gunshot wounds to the knee or uh, fracture patterns where there's uh, large areas of bone loss. Are there uh, strategies to mitigate this amongst authors? Hopes and prayers. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. <clears throat> I've, you know, it, it, depending on, you know, when these people come in and who's available and whatnot, you know, for young people, if there's a, a full thickness cartilage, you know, loss, the consideration is for some type of, you know, graft procedure down the road. And it might be, I've actually spoken to partners about this as the patients come in, call them from the OR saying, hey, I'm in the OR with this really bad patella, young guy, it's all cartilage loss here. And is it potentially a case for a, you know, cartilage transplant or an oats or something like that and get them involved early. But I think those are the only things you're going to be able to do with that. Yeah, I mean, not a whole lot to add. I think it's just reconstruct whatever you can. Uh, total patelectomy is a really bad answer. Partial patelectomy, 
is, you know, I used to do before mesh plating became, you know, more popularized. I used to do partials and they didn't do terribly, but I think save as much of the patella as you can uh, with plating techniques is the way to go. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one of the patella papers that you guys decided not to kind of pick up was, uh, I think it was a JOT article. I don't know when it was, maybe, you know, 10 years ago or so. But I think they actually compared, it might have been Archdeacon's group kind of con comparing partial patellectomies to RIFs. And it actually found pretty similar results, um, which was kind of surprising. But I agree. I mean, I, I would try to keep as much as possible. But that's certainly always in the back pocket if necessary. And uh, Dr. Amir, uh, you talked about using number two fiber wire. Is there ever times where you use a thicker fiber wire, like a number five or a fiber tape uh, in your constructs? No, in fact, I'd caution you. Sometimes you have to go smaller or go with a bigger screw. So the older 4.0 cannulated screws uh, had a larger inner core diameter, and it was easier to loop a number two and get both strands through. But some of the newer 4.0 screws, uh, you can't do it. That's why I said in the video, you need to try that on the back table. You may have to go up to a 4.5 screw or find, be sure that the manufacturer's inner uh, core diameter will allow you to pass that. So I actually caution you to possibly go smaller rather than bigger because of the screw uh, core issue. There's a question about um, any consideration for periprosthetic telefractures. And knee replacements. No one do anything differently. It's it's a different animal because you know you've had this. It's a very thin patella. It's been avascular at some point because of surgery and cement. Likely, I think it's just a different animal. You know, we do again. If you can get it to heal fibrously, it'll probably work fine. These are the cases where the orthoplasty people have been doing these uh, entire extensor mechanism allografts sometimes people that they, because they're very difficult to get to heal. Um, and those people who end up needing that end up doing marginally. I'm at an institution where, where fortunately my arthroplasty partners do not resurface the patella. So at least I, uh, for a lot of these uh, periprosthetic extensor mechanism disruptions, whether it's, you know, the quadriceps or patellar tendon or patella fracture, at least I have a whole patella to work with. And so, you know, obviously you can't influence them uh, to, to do what they want to do with the patella, but obviously uh, it really makes uh, life a lot easier when that's the case. Yeah, even easier. I have partners who are dual fellowship trained in trauma and arthroplasty and pass it on to them. Even easier. <laughs> and Dr. Eagle, what suture anchors are you using or what size of suture anchors are you using when you're using those to supplement your patellar fixation? I, I think they're four, I think they're four or five anchors. Um, I don't know if you want me to use name brands or whatever, but. Uh, Just size relative. Yeah, I, yeah they're, yeah. And it, it, yeah, that's what the anchor is. And, you know, I, I generally use like um, um, either a, uh, um, uh, num you can you can get a number five uh, th uh, through that uh, anchor, you know, uh, or you can use twos also. There's been a couple questions about how to prevent, uh, Dr. Muir, your screws from cutting your fiber wire. Any tips or what have you found to prevent that from happening? Yeah, so it's the same technique as if you're using steel gauge wire through the cannulated screws, right? Your screw, the end of your screw needs to 
not go past the cortex on the far side of the patella, right? So it's got to stop short of the cortex. And then um, especially uh, even with steel gauge wire, but even with, uh, with a suture technique, as you're taking the Keith needle through the end of the screw, it's not coming out right at the edge of the screw, right? It can go up through the quad tendon a little bit before it comes out, or if you're coming the opposite way through the patellar tendon a little bit. So there will be a little soft tissue uh, cushion in between uh, when you tie the tie the suture down to protect it from the screw as well. But really it's the key is making sure the screw is not protruding out past the end of the uh, end of the patella. And what value do our authors put on the not so much the patellar fixation portion, but the retinacular repair portion of the case specifically. Do you guys find that to be as important as the osseous actual fixation? Is it less important? And what might you use or what do you guys personally use to close the retinaculum specifically? I mean, the fact is, I don't know how important it is because after the skin is closed and the patient heals, I don't know what that contributed to it. And if there's a failure and I go back, you know, oftentimes the retinaculum can be intact or it can be, uh, you know, retorn. And I don't know if it's because the sutures failed initially or they failed eventually. So I, I, I can't really answer that. Although it does make me feel good to repair it. I usually use just number two fiber wire and just try to get as much tissue kind of together as I can. Again, I, I don't know how much it contributes to the overall kind of stability or strength of the construct, but I'm just kind of throwing as much as I can together and hopefully just some scar will help. Yeah, I do the same. I do interrupted figure of eights on each side to repair the retinaculum. Um, and then something else I do um, is for every extensor mechanism repair, patella fractures we're talking about tonight, but whatever I'm doing, I get a uh, a flexed lateral in the OR with the knee flexed at about 90 degrees to show that my construct was stable in the OR. And then, you know, I don't let them bend to 90 initially on my post-op rehab protocol, but just to show that I could get them there. And if I can't get them anywhere close to 90 with what I've done, then I question what I've done, especially on, on an acute setting. Revision, maybe I'll cut back a little to 70 or 60, but, but on an acute setting, if my repair can't tolerate 90, then I question my repair. I think uh, one of the questions that uh, I had previously asked Dr. Eagle is, is in the suture repair, it's a little bit less gratifying to do that post fixation, post stabilization bend test because you'll see some gapping uh, with the suture itself and that can be a little bit more gut-wrenching. So I, I, I do go to 90 just to prove to myself that I can, but uh, Dr. Eagle, I think in our discussion, you said you generally go to around 30 or 40, just make sure it can definitely tolerate that uh, be as compared to going to 90 with just the pure suture repair technique. Yeah, I, if, if I use a, uh, you know, a uh, cannulated screw wire technique, uh, I, you know, Usually you get good fixation and uh, and and you know you can let people move, but you know when you're using all suture technique, I think it's uh, you're I think you're asking a lot of the suture and uh, and the patient and whatnot. So I will I mean I'll at least get thirty to forty just to make sure that 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 it's going to withstand something. But then I'll I'll probably hold them and not let them bend for the first six weeks. Apparently the mesh plate is flexed all the way up in the OR, going over Dr. Warner. 
<laughs> that seems a little aggressive. There's also a lot of aggressive things that uh, Dr. Lord seemed to do, like all his, you know, plateaus he put on the CPM post up day one and wouldn't let him leave until they reached 90 degrees, um, which I do not do. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I certainly do not do that whenever I'm plating a more comminuted fracture. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's probably stable enough, like you said, to flex to 90 degrees, but I'm certainly not trying to touch their heel to their buttocks. I think that's a little much. I know all the authors presented uh, low rates of hardware removal in their papers, but uh, what is the earliest that you consider hardware removal? I try to get them to, to six months if possible, um, you know, uh, not based on probably really any hard evidence or data, but I try to get them to six months if I can. Yeah, I think long, longer the better, but, you know, try to have, yeah, exactly, I agree, some sort of threshold of six months if, if I can get them there. Yeah, I usually tell people at the very beginning that we, we can't take the hardware out before a year because I figure if they if they have that in their head, they won't even bother me, and then maybe by then they'll forget about it or something else will bother them. And are any of our authors or even our moderators, is anybody still using 18-gauge wire? In, in their practice? Yep. I All the time. I, I use 20 gauge because the 18 doesn't fit through the cannulated screws as well. Not betraying somebody. Any technique or tr uh, tips for using wire as compared to suture since it's a little bit more uh, a little more challenging to work with, just harder, and you got to really make sure you tension it, not without breaking it too many times. I don't know. I, I personally, I find it easier to pass through the cannulated screws than pass the suture. So, and uh, you know, it, everything is just what you're used to, and you know, experience. You know, the more you do it, the more you, the more facile you become with it. So, I, I've never really had a problem using the the wire, and uh, I you know I prefer it because because of the fact that I can tension it to my desired tension. Are you making them keep their broken wires in for a year? I don't have many broken wires. <laughs> I used to have a lot of broken wires when I just used K-wire and the tension band. But now that I use the cannulated screws, I don't, I don't see really any broken wires. Yeah. No, it's definitely different, I think, with the screws than with the K-wires, yeah. Is anybody still using K-wires as compared to screws? I do occasionally. I mean, I think all these techniques are, are good to be familiar with and have in your back pocket, you know, depending upon the fracture pattern and the patient. And uh, I, I do, I actually find that to be relatively simple. I mean, the hardware is more prominent. I think the hardware removal rate is probably a little bit higher. So I tend to try not to do that, but I, I still think there's a role for it. And I'm, you know, uh, more than comfortable doing it. Just did one, in fact, last week. There's one trick I've found if people have access to it is actually having your 18 gauge wire, your 20 gauge uh, wire on a sternal needle. It allows you to pass it very simply as it's attached to a, generally a very large uh, caliber needle. So you can pretty easily pass that under your wires through your tendon, tendinous portion. Just a little uh, trick I, I learned in, in fellowship. And with so I allowed to ask a question, I'll ask the question is, uh, what cases are you using K wires and 
steel wire on? Like what, what patient is that that shows up that, that you think that's the, that's a, the right answer? Uh, resident education. I think if they say that they want to try something different uh, just because they've seen plating, they've seen cannulated screws and they want to try to, you know, more kind of traditional, um, you know, modified tension band with K wires. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm fine doing it. So I, I think it's, uh, again, I, I don't think it's a particular pattern as it gets become more distal pole comminution or just more kind of uh, multi-fragmentary. Obviously, I'm, I'm going to probably advocate against that. But for some of the more simple transverse fractures, I, I think um, it, it's it's totally acceptable. So I, I don't have a particular patient where I say the wires are better than the screws because I don't think they are. But um, I, I think they they do a good job. And I think, uh, you know, it's just, it's interesting to kind of point out, I know Lorch was, a, I wasn't an author with him on this, but, uh, you know, probably 10 years ago or so, he did a meta-analysis looking at, I don't know, maybe 10 to 20 papers, maybe five to 700 patella fractures using various different techniques. And I think their non-union rate was, you know, maybe 2%. I mean, these patella fractures in general have a relatively low non-union rate. Now, the reoperation rate was high, obviously, just because of hardware prominence and need for removal. But, you know, for the most part, I think if you do a good job with whatever you're using and, and obviously, you know, kind of backing up with some of your soft tissue repair, I mean, these are going to heal. And, and as Dr. Eagles kind of pointed out, I think as long as you kind of um, restore that extensor mechanism, patients overall are going to do relatively well. But yeah, I, I don't have a specific uh, patient that I, I kind of go with the old school kind of, you know, modified tension band K-wire uh, technique, but I, I think just kind of whenever we want to mix it up. Sometimes I'll use a K-wire, like if, if there's a mostly transverse fracture that I fix with a couple of cannulated screws, and then there's a little fragment on the corner or on the edge somewhere that needs to, just to make the x-ray look better, to fix it in with a with a K-wire if, if we don't have like a small screw or it's too small for some type of, uh, of screw, and then just, you know, bury it. I, I do like it just because then the, uh, the cerclage wire is kind of... Uh passing over the superior pole as well as the inferior pole of the patella. So I feel like it's doing kind of a better job of kind of capturing uh, the patella. You know, again, I, it, it doesn't matter. I don't think it's just, uh, you know, I, sometimes I think it's useful. So it's really good. How often are you leaving the cut-off wiring? So I used to do that, but now I try to use the like absorbable pins instead. How, I'm sorry. The, the, I'm sorry. How often did you find that little, that little bit of comminution you're just going to cut a care off and leave it there? I try to use the PLLA pins now instead. Yeah, I, I, I do it rarely. And if I do it, what I'll end up doing is, you know, I'll put it in, I'll back it out, I'll bend it over like to 90, and then I'll pound it in so that it kind of, you know, like almost like an Electronon, uh, okay. less chance of it backing out and also less chance of it advancing. So, okay, so you're not just cutting it flush with the... No, I, no, I, I mean, you can do, I would do that if I was using threaded K wires, but I would, I, you know, just in case you needed to, get it out or whatever. I want to be, have some way of getting it out, I think. And has anybody had any experience where you're passing your, your cannulated screws or you're doing your tensioning and you get some added comminution uh, uh, once, you're, once you're doing that or you start getting pull out of your screws or poor bone quality? Yes. What do you what do you do? Plan B, plan C. I, I, I would tell you anytime you're operating on an older person, poor quality bone, just be prepared. You know, you don't need a CT. That thing is going to be more, it's never going to be two pieces. It's always going to be more comminuted than you think. The articular surface will be separated from the dorsal cortex. Everything that you can think of possibly expected in that case. And uh, 
you know, be prepared for plan B and plan C, you know, that, that's all I can tell you, but just get the extension mechanism, extension mechanism fixed any way you can. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly had cases where plan A was screws and then we converted to uh, to plating. How much combination are you accepting still in screws? Because I find that sometimes I go in with a plan to plate it, it's one little piece, I'll leave it, like I'll put a wire on a pin or something. But then when, what, what point you said, no, okay, I need to bail out, I need to plate this. So for me, it's if, um, if there's a little bit of dorsal combination that I know will get captured under the sutures, I'm not too worried about that. And if the screws are still through um, the uh, good cancellous bone on the articular side, but if the screws have just purely gone through fracture and they're not actually supporting the articular fragment or capturing the articular fragment, that's when I'm going to bail to a different technique. When you guys are doing your uh, plating of patellas, are you frequently using uh, a higher proportion of locking screws or cortical screws or giving it kind of what it needs to get that fragment-specific fixation to those smaller comminuted pieces? I think it kind of depends upon the patient's bone quality, but I pretty much err on, you know, cortical screws initially just to help kind of, uh, you know, push the plate down to make it, you know, a little less prominent. And then, you know, depending upon, again, bone quality fragments, you know, where I'm trying to get screws, then I could switch to some of these variable angle locking screws or just regular locking screws. But for the most part, cortical screws, I think, are typically pretty fine uh, or, or adequate in the patella. Yeah, I, I tend to use locking screws um, because these are going to all be unicortical. Uh, screws, and um, I'm always worried about uh, unicortical non-locking screw back out, you know, especially that's when it's under tension and such. So I'll almost entirely use lock once I get, you know, I'll, I'll get the plate sucked down with with a screw, and then I make sure it's well contoured, um, and then pretty much all locking screws, except if there's a chance to put one vertically through, you yeah. know, a bent over portion of the plate. I think in the A to P screws, like you said, unicortically, and then having the screw head sit a little more flush with the plate and be less prominent is good. But, you know, some of the more peripheral rim screws you're kind of shooting across can be bicortical. And I think usually those can be cortex screws. Yeah, same, nothing different. And are people still using, making their own mesh plates or are they only using the anatomic plates out from the various companies? Because the mesh plate goes around the lateral rim, but most of the anatomic ones are, are completely different. They're on the dorsal surface and going from inferior to superior. Yeah, I mean, for highly combinated ones, I'm using uh, the anatomic pre -con uh, anatomic plates now. For ones that are kind of variants where there's specific areas of combination, that's when I'll tend to use uh, a plate that I can shape myself to be more fragment specific for that case. Yeah, I, I've used, I've kind of moved more towards some of the pre-contoured plates just because it's just, I don't know, a little bit easier. And, you know, when we were using this technique, there was nothing out there. And now there is something to use. And for the most part, it seems to, to work most of the time, depending again, you know, how much of the kind of the peripheral rim I need. And Dr. Murray, you were talking about using a barb suture as an augment to kind of your retinacular or circumferential repair. Can you... Uh, describe that or how you do that yeah i don't um i i personally actually don't use any barb suture ishi is laughing because he was my fellow and i yelled at him for using barb suture 
Um, but yeah, so I don't use barb suture. I'll just do a running locking. Uh, I typically do that with a fiber tape now rather than a fiber wire, just for something a little more robust, but just a running locking uh, circlage. Well, I think uh, we're going to actually end up uh, wrapping up uh, this webinar and this Q&A section. Uh, but uh, once again, I want to really thank all of the authors as well as the moderators and then uh, also our participants. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And thank you for being involved in the AO. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again. And thank you to our AO staff as well for their excellent help. And thanks, everybody. Mm -hmm.